Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked, and now it's time to feel good naked. No matter what your body size or your life circumstances, this is Feel Good Naked Radio, and your host is Lar Redmond. On this program, Lar will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Laura Redmond. Welcome back to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redmond, and I'm just ecstatic today to have Noah Levine with me on the show, who I will introduce in a moment. Um, This is the last show of my current season, so I want everyone listening live to know that I will be reposting some of my favorite shows from this season, and then I'll be starting back up live in September. So I always really enjoy going out with a bang, and and today is no exception. Our show talks a lot about what it means to be embodied. You know, and most people think embodied is something that's primarily physical. And I am of the belief that it is spiritual, it is mental, it is physical, it is emotional. It's not just one thing. But I really appreciate bringing people into the show that are doing the work, that are spreading the message across the world and have done so for a long time. Um, It takes a lot of time to find people that inspire me. And this man is no exception. In fact, it's so cool how life works when you're really tuned in and living more mindfully. Everything starts to connect. It's spherical. Um, Noah Levine is a Buddhist teacher, an author, a counselor, and recognized keynote speaker. He was educated as a meditation teacher primarily by Jack Kornfield of Spirit Rock Meditation Center and has studied with a variety of prominent Buddhist teachers and holds a master's degree in counseling psychology. With over 25 years of experience in the addiction and recovery field, Noah has created a process of addiction recovery based on the teachings of the Buddha called Refuge Recovery. He is also the founder of Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society with active centers in Los Angeles and San Francisco and more than 20 affiliated groups across North America. He is the author of Dharma Punk, Against the Stream, Heart of the Revolution, and Refuge Recovery. Welcome, Noah. Thank you. Happy to join you. I don't know how often this happens to you, but I'm curious because I was so pulled to this recent article, which I read. Uh, It was the one that was written by Andrea Miller, and it's a beautiful piece about the work you do. I didn't get that your dad is Stephen. And and when I saw that he was your father, the whole circle, the sphere was confirmed for me because his work was so powerful for me in the 80s when I started in my awareness and mindfulness. And then I started to learn about your mother. So very sad that he left the planet physically, but just really honored to have you here and to know his son through this interview. Thank you. Yeah, that, uh, you know, it happens often. It's interesting. Sometimes people um, have found me because they, you know, they're aware of my father and they hear that his kid is doing something. And so they come check me out. But most of the time, it's the other way around where 
uh, I'm speaking to a group or or something, and then I say, you know, my father, Stephen Levine, and like half of the room is like, oh my god, I didn't know that was your dad, <laughs> uh, and it's like it's like a surprise to them. It's so entirely beautiful to me because your father was one of the first men that I ever experienced as a leader who was also very much this idea of embodied. You know, he had a an acute understanding of emotional sensitivity and coming from a man at that time in the 80s, he and Baba Ram Das were the first two leaders that really pulled my heart and then opened up my mind in such an incredible way as where, you know, obviously my soul as well. But I know you hear a lot of accolades for his work in the world, and it's just very precious to think that you're making such a statement in your own way. Yeah, and, you know, there are, although, you know, he is my biological dad, he was also my teacher, and, um, you know, I didn't, I wouldn't have come uh, to where I've come without having grown up with that embodied Dharma influence in my life. Well, let's jump in right there, because I think the thing that was so um, curious to me, as and, and I know your story is just incredibly layered. There's so many parts to it that are worth sharing. So I'm going to try to simplify for the listeners just to explain that your childhood ended up being very rebellious, extremely um you paid a big price. So I would like for you to just briefly tell the listeners what happened for you that was the road to your rock bottom. Sure. Yeah, it's it's hard to do concise, but I'll try. Um, I think some of the main points that are important for me are that by the time I was five years old, I was feeling actively suicidal. And my parents had been divorced when I was two. And, um, you know, and my beautiful spiritual, uh, you know, parents who had their own suffering, um, you know, were also of that hippie generation where drugs and alcohol were just part of their life. And so by the time I was seven, I started drinking and smoking pot and, you know, that suicidal urge to not be in body and not feel the emotions and pains and uh, experiences that I was having led me to self-medicating and trying to escape. And in the beginning, you know, drugs and alcohol probably were somewhat of a solution, maybe even kept me from killing myself. But in the long run, of course, it became addiction and it became a cause of suffering and not the alleviation of suffering. So by the time I, and then I was in and out of juvenile hall and all kinds of trouble, I had felonies. And um, by the time I was 17 years old, uh, you know, I was just a, a drug addict, criminal, you know, looking at spending the rest of my life in prison. And my father, uh, you know, and I had left home when I was a teenager. And, and my father called me, I was locked up, and he called me in the jail and said, you know, are you ready? Do you know, are you ready to try try something that will actually work? And he taught me meditation and simple mindfulness practice and and like everything started to shift from there because I was desperate enough to try something that didn't really make sense to me at the time you know I was an anarchist I was a punk rocker I was a you know pseudo revolutionary and um, I didn't really understand how spiritual practice was going to create any real positive change because I hadn't really investigated it yet and so uh, I started meditating and 
and had a powerful experience for the first time in my life realizing that my mind gave me terrible advice all of the time <laughs> and that I couldn't and that I couldn't trust my mind at that time and that the initial mindfulness of the breath and body practices allowed me to ignore my mind and that what a relief it was to be in my body even though at the time I'm you know detoxing and I'm locked in a cell and it's not like a pleasant sensation in my body but it's better than what my head was doing Mm. And and that began, you know, a meditation practice almost 30 years ago now. Well, I want to ask you this because I often hear in the work that I do the question, you know, how to get started with meditation. Norman Fisher has a really good article that I refer people to that he wrote in 2010. But honestly, when you just said that, I would love for you to tell us all, like, I just started to meditate. So, what was the actual process? Was it counting? Was it mantra-based? Was it um, a particular timed period that you'd sit? Were you in Shavasana? You know, give us the, help those out there who are thinking, oh man, all I hear now is meditate, meditate. What the heck? How do you do it? What's a good way to start? And how did you start under such duress? Right. Well, there's so many different forms of meditation. So I, I get it. It's a dilemma because, um, you know, yes, am I going to do mantra? Am I going to do mindfulness? Uh, am I going to do loving kindness or forgiveness? So I think it's, it is a dilemma for people of where to start. My, I have my own biases. Um, I think that concentration practices like mantra or even a narrow focus on the breath are g- very good initial practices. And that's where I started. I started with mindfulness of the breath with a noting practice, noting in and out with each breath. And that allows us to disengage from the thinking mind and just bring full attention to the sensations the breath creates. One of the important things to understand for people is that meditation on that level is not about stopping your mind or stilling your mind or quieting it. It's really about ignoring it. (laughs) Your mind Mm. can be doing whatever it wants in the background. And you can choose to bring your attention to the foreground of the sensations in the body without stopping the mind because awareness is separate than, than the, the contents. So you can have those uh, you know, background awareness of the thoughts, but the foreground of your awareness in the breath and body. So I think that's really important for people. So a concentration practice or even a mantra, you know, repeating something over and over, it's quite a good initial practice for some mind training. In the long run, people who get really serious about the benefits of embodied present time awareness, concentration will not do the trick. You know, so if if mantra is your only practice, like the TM practice or something, all it's really letting you do is ignore your mind. um, And it's not actually developing compassion. It's not actually developing non-attachment. The, you know, the, the core causes for the end of suffering will not come from ignoring They will only come from turning towards with wisdom. And so, uh, you know, there's the initial practices. And my father used to say, and I love this, he said, first we have to break our addiction to the mind. Mm. And that's what a concentration practice does. And that's what, you know, even a narrow mindfulness of the breath, which is actually concentration, break your addiction to thinking. But then you can't go through your whole life ignoring your mind. That's just not practical. 
So then what do you do when your mind is creating havoc? And and it's one of those moments that would be that, um, you know, attachment, for example, is taking over or something is just biting you in the ass and you're in that moment. What what happens? Well, one, once you've had some level of ability to ignore it, sometimes that's the right thing to do is say, okay, I'm going to come back to my breath. But then you want to be able to turn towards it and know the mind and say, okay, this is attachment and the pain of attachment. And this is how it feels in my body. This is how it, you know, the, the repetitive thoughts of craving, of clinging that are happening with it. And then you also want to know what's the antidote. Okay, I need to let go non-clinging. The mind is attached and encouraging a non-clinging. One of the things that helps the mind let go is when we soften the body. Often we hold that um, attachment in the mind and attention in the jaw and the shoulders and the belly. So sometimes a physical release, a somatic release will help relax the mind and let go of the clinging. Yeah. And then there's the process of, of replacing, like what are we clinging to, can we start sending forgiveness to it, can we start sending loving kindness to it, and so there's, there's, there's different skills, sometimes it's ignoring, sometimes it's replacing the thought, sometimes it's just acknowledging it, often when you turn towards the emotion, the thought, the experience with awareness and you say, this is clinging, that in itself does the trick. Because it's that unconscious uh, belief that, like, I have to hold on. But when you turn towards it with wisdom and say, oh, I'm holding on to something that's impermanent, that's changing, that is lost, that is grief. And what it's calling for is a healthy, compassionate relationship to the pain of that loss, not creating more pain through trying to hold on. Man, I really appreciate that description. Clinging is such a helpful word because I've studied the meaning of attachment for so long. What is it? Um, It's almost a troubling word to me because I can't always see the difference between attachment and non-attachment and which which would be the way to go would be non-attachment. But then it gets me in trouble when it comes to relationships, you know, because we think of attachment, love, uh, connection. And then I get really intrigued by what attachment really means and what is non-attachment. So you talk about being the kid that went through the divorce, you know, and, and I think for a lot of people, when their family breaks up, their parents aren't together in the same home, we learn a different understanding of connection. I'll use the word connection. Um, and, yeah. and what love, where is safety? Where is love? Where is the base, the foundation, the ground? And then we become more spiritual and we start to really understand the idea of non-attachment. You know, the goal is non-attachment. And then we realize maybe as that little kid divorced parents, there was a real lesson in non-attachment that actually happened in a painful way or something that might not be what the child would want. But in a lot of respects, I think I learned non-attachment from my broken family. And then I'm, and then I, and then I struggle to study the difference between that and the real meaning of non-attachment. So will you unpack this with me a little bit? Talk to me about how you understand attachment, non-attachment, relationship, love, connection, bring it to me in a different way context because I still find it curious and, and somewhat mysterious. 
Well, I, I like what you're saying, and it's, um, you know, it's how I think about it as well. And, of course, with all of the attachment theory uh, in, in psychology that says actually a healthy – there's a such thing as a healthy attachment. And, um, and I like what you're saying. It's what I do too, which is mm, a healthy connection, yes. Uh, and connection makes much more sense because attachment, as in clinging – is like a controlling something that you're trying to control something you can't control being connected because the core here is impermanence whether it's the divorce or it's the you know just changing moods and and experiences in any relationship everything's impermanent everything's changing and so if you're attached to that which is changing then you suffer Right, you get the mm. uh, Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers. He said, you know, clinging attachment gives uh, the rope burns because you're clinging to something <laughs> that is being pulled beyond your grasp in every single moment. Yeah. And so the only wise thing to do is is you know have a connection to that impermanent person, place, thing, experience, internal or external, but to have a, a wise non-clinging connection with that changing experience relationship so the one other thing um, that I would say like what you were talking about like we learn non-attachment I know what I have learned uh, you know and that what happened for me and the suicidality and all that was that it wasn't healthy connected non-attachment it was detachment or dissociation mm. And I think that that's often where people, we overcompensate. We say, oh, connection, you know, attachment hurts, so I'm going to detach. I'm going to separate myself from. And it's not, it's no longer connected. It's disconnected. Oh, boy, is that important. That's important, yeah, the detachment. And even, you know, in Buddhism, sometimes people, you know, mistranslate things as like, you know, detach or like in – Al-Anon, they say detach with love. And okay, and I'm just, it's a little bit semantics here, but my feeling is non-attachment, you can still be connected. You can still be present with. Detachment, you are separate from, like you can't actually be detached and loving because you've separated yourself. It's just semantics because it's really non-attached, loving, compassionate, appreciation, to the reality that all things are impermanent. And so non-attachment is the only wise relationship. There's no such thing as healthy attachment. All attachment Uh. creates suffering. Now, it's just semantics again. And if I could go back and speak to Mr. Bowlby, who created the attachment (laughs) theory, I would say, hey, John, um, let's not use the term attachment. Let's use the term connection because that's what you really mean. Yep. healthy connection to our primary caregivers, to our partners, to our, you know, our intimate relationships, a healthy connection that is non-clinging. Yeah, yeah, that's so helpful. And also, I think when we're in these love relationships, you have to be accountable and check in and and note when you're feeling a clinginess or um, an attachment or a codependency as we often hear it spoken as and then really understanding the difference between that and the idea of connection very helpful when I'm when I'm doing when I'm teaching this you know it's hard to do over the radio without the visuals but what I do is I put my hands together kind of in that prayer position I say this is connection 
Mm, I'm going to do it. This is where we are connected. And, uh, and, then, and then kind of interlace the fingers where they're grasping and they're clinging to each other. Okay. So, you know, this is attachment. And when you're attached like this, there's no room for change, for impermanence, right? You're holding on and one hand is trying to pull away from the other because that's its nature. It's changing. As a, and then you go back into the connection, the, the prayer, and then you separate and you make, you know, 10 inches between the hands, and you, you know, make that space between the hands. And then you say, like, oh, now I can't. Now I'm not even, I'm totally disconnected. I'm detached and I can't even be present with the other person because I've left them. And then we come back together in that prayer uh, place and say, oh, actually, I want to be present with you without clinging to you. I want to be present for your impermanent changing moods and sensations and thoughts and feelings. And for my changing moods and thoughts and feelings. We want to stay connected to our both unfolding process of being. Oh, that's so beautiful. I just did that with my hands as you spoke me through that exercise. And it actually was visually very helpful in understanding the difference. Yeah. Because so, I like what you're saying about connection. And there's a place for embracing and my father, you know, they used to talk about embracing the beloved, you know, to, you know and I, I like that, that there's a place for a healthy embrace um, that's not the digging the nails in clinging. <laughs> yeah, and, and that is the great, the great journey is that embracing that is without that clinging. I mean, I just think yeah. that's a lifetime practice if you're in an, you know, a position to have another person to try that out with. And I think in a way we learn way more with that opportunity than by ourselves navigating in the world because it's so much harder when that mirror of other is held up. Noah, I'd love to ask you about going from being locked in and having that prison experience to what led you into the world with this concept or idea of you know, you already have what you need. I think that's one of the most powerful things I took from this article I recently enjoyed that was written about your theories. I, I love the idea that you already have what you need as opposed to what we've often heard in the Al-Anon or AA uh, format. So take us through your curious journey from that point to becoming this incredible leader and, and really teaching that you already have what you need. Well, I mean, it, it is basic Buddhism. It's not something that I'm making up. But my journey with it is um, that I got sober. I started meditating. I started going to 12-step meetings. And I found in meditation something that was practical. I found in Buddhist philosophy something that was empowering and non-theistic, that was talking about the purification of one's heart and mind through one's own actions, purification of karma through how we show up. Um, and in the 12 steps, I, I, you know, I found a philosophy that said um, human beings can't do this. Only a divine, you know, higher power can, can remove this stuff from us. And, um, and I, the, the Judeo-Christian theistic model of the 12 steps never made sense to me. But the Buddhist empowering through your own efforts, uh, developing non-attachment and, uh, you know, a, a kind of an inter, a mindfulness-based intervention, 
based on how we relate to our cravings rather than a divine intervention made sense to me. And so I applied the meditative Buddhist perspective, but I didn't, what I didn't find um, was I didn't find a, a community in the Buddhist practice that I could really relate to. It was my dad and all his hippie friends. <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a tattooed punk rocker, and I'm like going to meditation retreats and going like, you know, the, these people are so cool and loving, but mm. none of them are gonna go, you know, listen to the Ramones with me. <laughs> you know? none, of them, none of them are going to the Motorhead show this weekend with me. So I don't have any any community here. I have a philosophy that makes sense, but in the 12 steps, that's where that was my, you know, my kind of punk rock sober, also in straight edge punk rock was was really important, this whole drug-free community. Because also with what we were talking about before around attachment theory and connection and, you know, that early childhood suicidality, because I wasn't feeling connected, I wasn't feeling like my parents were present, right? And so I wanted out. A lot of the healing of addiction happens through the community, through becoming connected to others. And so the Buddhist philosophy was so helpful to me, but I didn't find the community that I you know, was in as a place to connect. And I found that in the 12 steps. So for a long time, I had, you know, my community and, you know, sponsoring and fellowship and all of that stuff was with people who actually had different spiritual beliefs than I did, which didn't really matter that much because, um, you know, there's a universal spiritual, you know, there's enough in common <laughs> that, yeah. that there's enough, co- you know, there's enough universal spiritual principles that it was fine. Uh, but eventually I found that actually it was the Buddhist view that made more sense. And, you know, like I said, I didn't make any of that up. You know, this is just basic Buddhism that every living being has the power and potential to end suffering in their life through their own efforts, through exactly what we're talking about, training the heart and mind to be connected but not attached, training the heart and mind to meet pain with compassion and mercy and forgiveness and not, you know, the typical survival instinct, which, which is hatred and attachment. So, AA versus refuge recovery would be one is based on Buddhism and one is based on Christianity. What yeah, else? And, you would- know, I mean, they, they might make an argument in saying, because the 12 steps are so, you know, those guys 80 years ago, even, you know, they were Christians, but they were so open-minded. They said higher power as you understand it. You know, like they really tried to make it inclusive, but mm-hmm. they just didn't know, uh, they, they couldn't fathom that there was any kind of spiritual experience that wasn't theistic, you know, God-based. Yeah. Uh, but they did their best to be open-minded about it. Yeah, so that's, you know, that's a core difference. Um, refuge would be non-theistic. There's not a God concept in, in Buddhism. And uh, the 12 steps are open-minded theism. I wanted to read this to the listeners um, in the beginning of Noah's book, which is called Refuge Recovery, A Buddhist Path to Recovering from Addiction. 
in the very beginning, I really found this helpful. There is a little um, intro that's the process, and it says, Refuge recovery follows the traditional Buddhist system of the four noble truths, which begin with four actions. Number one is that we take stock of all the suffering that we have experienced and caused as addicts. So I want to stop there and just say, is that sort of a... Another way, the the first step of AA being powerless, you know, and and I hate the word powerless because I think it's so um, disempowering. Right. But in the same respect, I loved that. Just reading that number one really did feel like a nicer way to say powerless, but but really, it's just saying the suffering right. that you've experienced and caused. Yeah, and the real key there is to break the denial and the rationalization and the minimalization and all of the ways that we forget how much suffering there is when we're addicted and how we deny it and, you know, that typical, like, well, I was only hurting myself kind of thing. And so the first truth of refuge recovery is a very in-depth inventory of looking at all of the ways, suff- you know, addiction has caused suffering, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others, our friends and family, and all of the harm that we've caused as addicts, and turning towards it, and, uh, you know, accepting that, that uh, you know, the only thing that continued addiction, drug use, you know, behaviors is going to do is cause more suffering to us and others. How do you explain to someone how they can know if they are an addict? How, how does someone know if they're an addict? Well, that's, you know, um, I actually, that's an interesting question. I don't know if I've been asked that question. That's interesting. <laughs> I mean, if you're an addict, you know you're an addict. And of course, there's there's um, a continuum there, right? There is, uh, uh, you know, people who are dependent. There are people that are heavy drinkers. There are people who are, um, you know, there's there's everywhere from, you know, social, casual, drug and alcohol use to dependency to full-blown addiction. And, you know, the 12 Steps view likes to make a uh, distinction between what, um, you know, somebody who's become dependent, like that some people will actually become dependent on drugs that don't have the addictive personality, you know, like, um, you know, there, and for me, it's also the difference between the addictive substances and the non-addictive substances. Uh, you really have to drink a lot over and over and over to become addicted to and dependent on alcohol. You know, alcohol in itself isn't that addictive. You know, pleasure that you get from alcohol, but something like cocaine or heroin, which are just like the body just immediately gets addicted to it. You know, you you take opium, you know, pain pills or heroin or whatever it is, a handful of times and your body becomes dependent upon it. Hmm. So my sense is that not everybody that becomes dependent upon, you know, almost everyone after a surgery and then they have to take pain pills, they become addicted to those pain pills. But they're not the definition of addicts because they will then go through the unpleasant experience of uh, detoxing and you know getting off of the pain pills, and they're not going to spend the rest of their life going back to it. And so the addict would then be un... or, or would believe that they're incapable of 
departing from that feeling. So they just have often, to keep getting it. Often. And then also, the, uh, tr- you know, often the addicts, it will switch from one thing to another, too. It's like it's going to be addiction across the board often um, where they'll put down the drugs and alcohol and then it'll become, you know, it'll manifest as food addiction or sex addiction or that compulsive uh, tendency will show up in all areas of their life. So is it an inner strength that keeps one from being that? Or is that something that you think is just inherently born into the person? I mean, where does that, Um, where's the line drawn in those, in those thoughts? You know, it's hard to say. One school of thought that makes most sense to me is it's um, it's trauma. Mm. Every everyone has repetitive craving for sense pleasures. Yeah, that's just you know this is the Buddha's second noble truth. This is the reality of being born into this human biology that craves for pleasure. Everyone has repetitive craving for pleasure. But when you have trauma, especially early life trauma or even later trauma, um, sometimes it manifests as a disregard for the consequences. People uh, crave, but then they have enough sort of reason to say like, yeah, I want to feel good, but I'm not going to start sticking a needle in my arm to do that. (laughs) I want to feel good, but I'm not going to drink every single day. I'm not going to start, you know, doing that all of the time just because I like the effect of wine. I'm not going to drink to the point of alcoholism. But when we have trauma, when we have, you know, low self-esteem because of an, uh, you know, a, a lack of connection with our primary caregivers, when we have self-hatred, then that's more likely going to create that ordinary craving for sense pleasure into an addictive pattern. Mm, that's helpful. That's so helpful. Yeah. So I wanted to read number two of the process, which is that we investigate the causes and conditions that lead to addiction and begin the process of letting go. So would letting go be like what you experienced when you were in lockdown and you were going through what you said was detox, as well as starting to meditate through the advice of your beloved father? What what does letting go really mean? In that context, yes, it is both, but I think I'm primarily pointing to renunciation, is that when we do that inventory and see the suffering, and we do the inventory and investigate some of the, just what we were talking about, uh, trauma and experiences in our life, the first question in that second truth inventory is, what is your most painful memory? You know, what are you holding? And how did the drinking or the using or the addictive behavior affect that painful memory. So let's think a little bit about the letting go. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, so it's just what we've been talking about, where in the first truth, we're looking at the suffering that addiction has caused. And the second one, we're looking at what is it investigating? Everyone has that ordinary human craving for sense pleasure. But what are some of the experiences, uh, developmental or acute traumas or difficulties in our life? that perhaps led to that addictive experience. And so the first question there on that second truth inventory is, what is your most painful memory? 
What are you holding? And how did it change when you were drinking or using or, uh, you know, acting in the addictive patterns? And what happens now when you, you know, maintain abstinence? Because the letting go here is really about renunciation. It's about identifying the, the truth of the suffering, the underlying causes and conditions that led to that intense craving, and also the acceptance that uh, no matter how much we participated in the addictive behavior, it didn't actually work. It didn't actually alleviate our suffering. And then the long term for addicts, it just creates more. So there's a long, an, another big inventory there in the second truth. And then that's where we turn towards the solution and the letting go of and establishing abstinence and saying like, okay, this didn't work. No more drinking, no more drugging, no more acting out sexually or with food or money or however it's manifested and establishing you know, an abstinence of that behavior. That's the letting go of the dysfunctional coping mechanism that became addiction. Hmm. And then number three is coming to understand that recovery is possible and to take refuge in the path that leads to the end of addiction. So talk a little bit about that as you let go of that particular addiction what now for that person who's like, okay, I let go. I'm, I'm sober. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to establish abstinence. And, you know, it comes very quickly in refuge to like, okay, mindfulness meditation and forgiveness meditation. And that, you know, we, we say we're not asking for blind faith, but we're asking for a verified faith. But in order to verify that you can do this, that you can recover, you have to do these actions. And so we go from the third truth to the fourth, which is the Eightfold Path, mm. where we begin mindfulness meditation, we begin um, forgiveness meditation, compassion, and then we start to see, oh, I can break my addiction, not only to the substances, but as we spoke about earlier, to the mind that's telling me to drink and use and act out in these ways. Oh, I love, yeah, number four is so powerful. It's that we engage in the process of the eightfold path that leads to recovery. Number one, understanding. Number two, intention. Number three, communication, community. Number four, action, engagement. Number five, livelihood, service. Number six, effort, energy. Number seven, mindfulness meditations. Number eight, concentration meditations. So when you're looking at that incredible eightfold path and and you're having an issue with one of them, let's just say it's not working, you're feeling very stuck or you're going back into the craving or the want, what is the best way to stay with the discomfort in your opinion well, it's, it's where the meditation practices become versatile, and as we were speaking about earlier, uh, is it time for a concentration practice, or is it time for a mindfulness practice? Our tolerance for discomfort is something, is a skill that we build, um, and we're quite clear in refuge, like, this is a necessary skill. You have to learn to be in pain, you have to learn to be uncomfortable, um, that that's just, it's part of being a human being. 
you don't get to avoid all of the pain and discomfort. That's why we became addicts in the first place with that, yes. with that vain attempt to avoid. And so uh, mindfulness of saying, okay, I'm going to sit here with this impermanent, unpleasant experience. Uh, and then sometimes it's replacing it and meeting it with compassion, with forgiveness. Sometimes it's just seeing the impermanent nature of it. And these are meditation skills that are built, you know, long term. When I was looking at your um, your Google life, I was so taken by so many of the videos that I found of you. In fact, my favorite had to be you diving over the crowd in what looked like a somersault. I was so impressed. It's like, where did you land? The video didn't show your landing. <laughs> it showed your execution. But I uh, thought, did you land in someone's arms or on your feet? <laughs> you let, I mean, that, you know, what you're referring to is the classic punk rock stage dive, <laughs> also known as crowd surfing. So, you know, you jump off of the stage onto the heads of everybody in the front of the concert and they kind of carry you and gently put you down okay okay when you're lucky (laughs) and then when you're unlucky sometimes they just get out of the way and you just you know jump off the stage and land on the ground (laughs) (laughs) well the video i brought up was hard to totally see what happened to you it it seemed like a good ending but i um was also wanting to talk about another video i found of you about anger um anger is probably one of my most favorite of all the emotions to talk about because I think it's so misunderstood and and really doesn't get the kind of attention it needs. So I found this video of you talking about anger and it was very powerful for me to watch because I think there is value in anger. I think there is a place for anger, but I believe in our culture we've considered it to be so uncomfortable and we often confuse rage or harm with anger. So I wanted to, I wanted to open up a a conversation with you about anger for these listeners to, to think about it through your lens because I found it very refreshing. I think that what you're referring to is a view and an experience that I had because I was a very angry young man. And as the more I meditated the more I kind of began to investigate the primary emotions and what was happening underneath there. And what I found was that mostly there was a, a well of pain and, and sadness and unattended grief and sorrow that I was reacting to, that, that anger felt powerful. My sadness felt too vulnerable, right? Anger felt strong, uh, the, the pain that was fueling that underneath, it felt more primary in my experience. It felt, uh, you know, felt, felt vulnerable. And so I saw that in my life, I was so often using anger to cover up sadness, hurt, vulnerability. And that in, in the long-term meditation practice, I was able to land more in a caring and a compassion and a mercy for those what I see as more primary emotions. And then I found that I became less and less angry and that anger didn't, you know, manifest so much. And what really happened for me, and I think I think this is a, a, a normal process, is that what replaced it was, because what replaced it was a passionate caring, you know, mm-hmm. what we call compassion. 
Um, I, it's not that I just wasn't angry, you know, no longer cared about the state of the world and all of the oppression and ignorance that that really is at play here in the world. Um, but rather than hating it or being angry about it, caring passionately about it, which doesn't cause surf, uh, suffering. Because it brings us back to, you know, compassion has is is that connected, non-clinging, loving attitude, right? It's and hatred feels like a clinging uh, need for it to be different than it is. Mm. And so I think it goes back to, you know, um, that are we creating suffering for ourselves based on our response to what's happening? And in my experience, anger mostly created suffering for me, mm. where compassion never creates suffering for me. <laughs> mm. and, but, and I don't care any less. Actually, I probably care more and feel more passionate about creating a positive change, about justice, about social, political movement in the right direction. But I don't feel angry about it anymore. Yeah. See, I think it's so interesting as an emotion because it's an incredible gateway to pain and to sadness. And when someone really is given the compassion to experience it as a gateway, it is an infinite opening for joy and to understand the complexity of feelings because it's a shield. I mean, it's, it's like a big old shield. But right, right under that, right behind that is great, great pain. And right. I find that just fascinating and helpful to guide people through because what is your pain? And, yes. and then that yes. bravado and that anger is just this sort of ridiculously, um, it's, like a, it's like a phony mask at Mardi Gras, you know, it's like, a, it's something right. that isn't at all what's going on inside the, the human person that is in pain. So, I find it really interesting. Like uh, it's a necessary part of the process. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, mean, and, I, I like that. Also, do you think that there's some gender conditioning differences here? Um, you know, I, I feel like as a, a man, I was allowed to be angry. Mm, and that I see often some of our conditioning of like, well, women are not allowed to be angry. And so sometimes I see with my students or clients that like, actually, you need to get a little pissed off. You need to feel some some of that injustice and not say it was all okay. You need oh, to yeah. actually feel that pain there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. And that's why I find it so fascinating because, yes, I think there is a gender bias. I also think that in the same way, men are really given a unfair understanding of emotional clarity and expression. And I think that, you know, we often hear it as men, you know, are taught not to cry. Women are taught not to scream. Everybody needs to cry and scream. Right. And we really, we need to make sure that the message is not gender biased, but it is. And and so, yes, there's great, value in giving a woman a chance to really get it out, whether it's, you know, not very pleasing, and it is angry, and it's great to see a man who can feel, feel the heart muscle in something that is so difficult to 
own as a quote man. So yeah, that let's break let's keep breaking those boundaries because that's really a beautiful idea especially as you're raising children and I raised two boys and I'm so proud of the men that they are. But, you know, there was a lot of crying. There was a lot of permission to emote and um, now I see them at 26 and 22 and I'm just blown away by their emotional competency. So there's great great reason to break out of that uh, gender-specific messaging, which is so ridiculous and, and limited. Noah, I want to ask you, what do you mean by um, everyone should question the Dharma? Is, is that kind of what we're saying with this sort of idea of gender specificity? Or what do you mean by that, that everyone should question the Dharma? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, the Dharma, the way that I'm using the term probably there is the the teachings of the Buddha or really any spiritual teaching or spiritual teacher um, that, you know, we shouldn't take any of this stuff on blind faith, but that we should question it, we should investigate it. And I'm not talking about, I'm not encouraging like skeptical doubt, but I'm encouraging like a, a healthy inquiry of questioning and saying like, does this make sense in my direct experience when I apply it, when I practice it, is it alleviating suffering? Is it bringing about more joy in the long run? You know, it's it's a tricky thing because meditation, the Dharma, the path, it's not a quick fix. So if you if you <laughs> if you question it too quickly and you'd be like, okay, I meditated twice, did it work? Not really. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so you know, this is more of a long term engagement with it. But that, um, you know, I'm very skeptical about religion, and where you know even the Buddhist religion has really departed from the early teachings and what the Buddha originally was encouraging. You know, and then human beings, they love to create religions and make patriarchal power structures. And sometimes the very thing, the very teaching that was meant to alleviate suffering and oppression has become a, co- a source of suffering and oppression. And so that's really where that sentiment comes from. Like, have a healthy questioning attitude. Don't believe everything your Lama says. Don't believe everything <laughs> your meditation teacher says. Don't believe everything your yoga teacher says. Yeah. Check it out for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And in a way, that is what we're saying, too, about male-female training and conditioning. You know, ask, break out of these very tight ideas that no longer serve the human being. Where do you get your inspiration? I know Jack Kornfeld was part of your um, very strong leaders, the, the people that you grew up around. But right now, today, where what inspires you? Um, you know, it's, it's the same. It hasn't changed that much. Uh, you know, it's, it's my, really, it goes back to the early teachings, but it's the people that brought me the early teachings of the Buddha. So it's Jack Kornfield and it's Ajahn Amaro, this wonderful Buddhist monk who, you know, these guys have been my teachers for almost 30 years now and they're, they're living the Dharma, you know, and, and one of my core teachers Ajahn Amaro who's a monk who's a you know a monastic so he's celibate he's you know no money no and so for him like there's a a renunciate uh inspiration that I get from him and then Jack who you know has a family and worldly and you know then I can see like oh how do we apply this in the world 
Um, and then, of course, my parents, Stephen and Andrea, were such great inspirations to me. And, you know, I mean, all across the board, I mean, I, I was so inspired by Thich Nhat Hanh, by the Dalai Lama, by Suzuki Roshi, you know, a lot of those big, uh, you know, teachers that, that I got to access. These days, it's not so much about teachers as much as just my own moment-to-moment experience, my practice of, you know, being a parent, being a friend, mm-hmm. being, you know, being in uh, the application of the Dharma and not looking so much outside of myself for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I like my accountability with my Sangha, with my, you know, colleagues and with my teachers. But um, I don't I don't feel like it's so much of an external source of inspiration as much as it is the moment-to-moment awareness and embodiment and interaction with my own heart and mind. And boy, your best opportunity is as a parent, isn't it? Isn't it so? Like you really get to practice the Dharma often. Absolutely. What are you listening to? What is it? What What excites you musically right now? Um, pretty much, pretty much the same stuff. Like that <laughs> that clip you saw of me doing a stage dive was to a band called Youth of Today. Youth of Today was one of the bands when I got sober in 1988 that was a drug-free punk rock band. And so it was so important for me because I was already a punk rocker, but, you know, my punk scene was drugs and alcohol. And so to find this sect of, of, um, of punk rock that were drug-free. So I've been listening to that band for almost 30 years and you know, I just saw them. I was hanging out with the singer, who's who's a yoga teacher. He's a Hindu, Raghunath, and uh, you know. So we're talking about the straight edge scene and the spiritual practice that we've both committed our lives to. Um, so it hasn't changed that much. I still listen to a lot of the early punk, and I also love Jamaican music, ska and reggae, mm-hmm. and you know some hip hop. I don't love all of the modern hip hop, but I love a lot of the '90s hip hop and. Um, so punk rock, rap, and reggae is kind of on my turntable. <laughs> so fun. Noah, how can somebody find you and uh, work with you? What, what is the best way to um, know more about you for a listener that wants to take it deeper? Yes. Yeah, so for information on Refuge Recovery meetings, go to refugerecovery.org. There's about 300 meetings around the country. Um, and you can pick up the book, Refuge Recovery. For information about meditation retreats or classes, go to againstthestream.org, and that will, that's my, my meditation centers. And, um, yeah, I think that, you know, those are the two. Oh, and then if, you know, people who are actually in need of addiction treatment, uh, refugerecoverytreatmentcenters.com is, you know, where we talk about our detox and residential and outpatient, you know, services using this meditative path as as treatment for addiction. What a true pleasure to talk to you. I've enjoyed every second of this conversation. I want to thank you so much for your time. And, and the tagline for my show is that you complete you. And you have just been a beautiful example of that message today, Noah. So thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Have a beautiful day. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. 
Please join us live again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin. 